Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'll tell you honestly, the last few days have just sucked donkey. I think that's the only way to put it. And it's not because it's 109 degrees. It has a lot. And I don't even think it's the downstream effects or side effects. I think it's just a lot of administrative nonsense and crunching of just the pressures of sheer social system collapse and foolishness and the ever uh, grinding uh, stamp press of financial anxiety and the fact that really you can't get through to any human beings. You're always talking to uh, automated systems now and going around in a loop, or in some cases, they're they say simply, uh, there's a major state services they just say, We have a technical problem we can't resolve, we are no longer taking calls. This is a state Nevada state system. But on the, on the good news front, I rediscovered a lost cache of photos from my visit to the island of Komodo in Indonesia, which was never easy to get to, boat only, and a really nasty sort of boat trip there, as I recall too vividly. And I have no seasickness problems at all. But it's now very difficult because the Indonesian government has uh, surprisingly put in some environmental protections. It's, that's completely counter to the Indonesian government's idea of anything. But I have some great photos I've rediscovered, including 43 minutes of second generation night vision video on a hunt with my friend who was then uh, one of the, the major wildlife conservators, guides, you know, curators of the island, and uh, had lived with the dragons for a very long time. So that's the good news after a lot of just complete, complete BS. How are you? I'm good. My wife and I went house hunting. Ooh. Uh, I am moving back to my hometown for a job opportunity. And I looked it up recently. I hadn't looked it up in a long time. When I left Lawton, it was number eight in America for violent crime. It is no longer number eight, but it's still in the top 20. Uh, so I get a call from my mother. This is when I'm still in the town that I live in now, in Edmond. I'm driving back from dropping my wife off at work. And she's telling me that the guy who sold me my Chevy tracks and sold her, her Impala, is also a realtor and has places to live. So she says, he just told me that he has a place that he's renting out for $900, but for you, he'll do it for $750. And so the first thing I say is, what's wrong with it? 
and I can hear him laugh on the other end of the line. Mom's there at the dealership getting her oil changed. And he says, he says, I get where you're coming from, man, but there's, there's nothing wrong with it. Just come on by, uh, check it out. We'll give you the key. And so as we're talking, there is a white car pulling out of a Chili's parking lot at 9 a.m. And they just kind of go. I swerve out of the way to avoid a collision very close. And they would have hit right where Gus was. So I swerve out of the way. And so I'm I'm doing this preamble to the story because I believe in signs. I believe in following signs. And I make the connection immediately. I'm speaking to this person about this house. And we just very nearly got into a potentially very bad car accident. But I say, okay, I'll check it out. So we're down there yesterday. We pick up the keys. Uh, we're driving through the neighborhood. And I'm replaying what this car salesman was telling me in my head. Safe neighborhood. Nobody does anything crazy. There's no real drug problems, nothing. And I'm driving through this neighborhood and I'm seeing toothless people skittering around. I'm seeing extremely tall grass. Apologize for being elitist about this, but I, I do look at people's lawns and see how well they take care of them. So we are driving down a street called Oak and this house is on 58th. So you need to turn left onto 58th from Oak going south. And right when we're about to hit that junction, I see uh, an enormously obese woman with no teeth run out of her house yelling something at a very skinny man with a scraggly beard who hops into a white truck. I'm on edge. I'm watching this happen in the in the distance, about maybe 50 yards off as I'm driving up. I see him get into that car and I instinctually, I'm thinking back to that premonition. And so I'm covering my brakes. I eventually slow a good distance behind him. Well, this guy gets into his car, throws it in reverse, and without looking, stomps on the gas pedal. So he is screeching in reverse towards my car. I don't have time to honk. I don't have time for anything. I'm in full react mode. I throw my car in reverse and I'm driving backwards as fast as I can. So I'm currently engaged in a kind of reverse car chase down this road. All of this lasts about five seconds. He cuts his wheel, runs over a trash can, hops the curb, and then peels out in the other direction. And I'm thinking about what the salesman told me in my head. Safe neighborhood. No drug problems. No nothing. And then to cap off the story on, on an anticlimactic note, we get to the door of this very small, uh, not bad looking, but old, probably built in the 70s, decent yard. Uh, but you can tell there's some peeling paint. There's some issues we'd have to take care of. We get to the door and the key doesn't work to open the door. So once that key didn't work, 
it put everything into this perfect story in my head that began a day earlier with a near miss car crash and a phone call and ended with a reverse car chase and a door that did not open. Perfect. Just, just get that transcribed. That's lovely. That end was perfect. That was beautiful. You know, that whole rap just reminded me of, um, and I'm in contact with her again because she's she's pitching on some art. Pro- she actually listened to me about some things. She she doesn't think of herself as any kind of artist at all. Not when I when she was a student of mine. Really, really funny black chick named Sharon, mm-hmm. and she is one of those uh, people, women with just an enormously expressive face, and she also has a she just has a snuggly personality. That's what the way her friends described her as. Mm -hmm. And she did this art project of getting a video of her watching TV shows, but you don't get to see what the shows are. And she is so animated and involved and, you know, kind of she's wiggling on the couch. And sometimes she has a couple of friends, girlfriend, a boyfriend, whatever. But oftentimes she's just on her own. And, you know, she'll go, don't do it. No, no, David. You know, and she would be saying, David, get out of there now. You know, right. And, and you get involved. She creates this, you know, phantom story that is you see the whole thing. But you've done that. Well, I. I'm excited about the job opportunity. You didn't tell listeners that you're going to be teaching um, in a public school system in sort of the area where you came from, which is no longer, as you say, in the top 10 crime, but it's still, yeah. And you've got a lot of things to hurl, but big congratulations on that, David. I think you're going to be a great teacher. And I, I hope it scares the shit out of you. And I hope you scare the shit out of them. And also have a great deal of fun. When does school start? I have to be down there on Monday to get fingerprinted and to have the the board officially approve my my hiring. They have to do it. It's a budgetary yeah. uh, cer- ceremony. So the school has offered me the job and I've accepted and I'm going to do all the formalities on Monday. And then school, my uh, my first PD or professional development begins on August 1st. So quickly, quick, I'm, I'm getting thrown into the deep end. I'm glad that you said, I hope it scares the shit out of you because I haven't felt even a little bit of fear yet, but I know that I will. But for me, that's exciting. Yeah. I oh. like the idea of, you know, because I I have a certain level. I credit this podcast, but I have a certain level of confidence in speaking. And I've worked with children before. And I know that going into it, I have to, uh, I have to meet them in certain ways. Right. I can't talk to them like I talk to you is what I mean. No. But no. um but that that confidence is carrying me through what might be to some people a feeling of being thrown into the deep end. However, 
I'm anticipating the same way that I, you know, I would anticipate skydiving or something like that. I'm anticipating the moment of being up in the plane and I'm, I know it's going to happen the same way when you're getting ready to skydive, you're putting on the suit, you know, you're, you're, they're giving you the rundown of everything. You're not quite anxious yet, but you know, it's coming, you know, once you're in that plane, you'll feel it. That's where I'm at right now. Good. Well, you know, I think one of our problems at in a very large cultural scale is that we've lost just that sacredness of a little bit of good fear. You know, uh, I have a, a, I haven't spoken to for a bit, but a Navy SEAL friend, you know, talked about dog fear, you know, the smell of, of the pack and the smell of conflict and the smell of kind of, it, oddly, the smell of, of the butterflies in one's stomach, you know, um, mm-hmm. if that's possible, you know, and I think that all of that adrenaline rush is, is really great. And, and performers all around the world, and it is a performance gig, you're in show business, whether you think of that or not. Um, I, I am, I'm going to be back teaching too, uh, in, in uh, not in only like a month's time. And uh, you never know what you're going to get. I mean, I think I've told you about uh, the Iraq vet who, you know, brought in all of his medication, which took a whole old fashioned Gladstone bag. You know, a Gladstone bag, you know, this beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Well, he also had a loaded nine millimeter, you know, Mm. and that was a little bit of an issue. And I said, you know, Zach, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to take that gun. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we're just we're going to have to, um, you know, go to the camp. I, I just. I said, I'm hoping, I'm just hoping you're going to hand me the gun because I'm going to take the gun one mm-hmm. way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was cool about it. So you just, you never know. And maybe this is, and I'm not in any way supporting the the violence and the dangers that teachers face today. I have nothing but empathy and respect and anxiety. I worry about Lisa teaching, you know, even at mm-hmm. elementary school level now. I worry about my uh, neighbor at my the the condo I moved from. Who uh, you know, basic Clark County garden variety teacher, no pretensions to be anything different. Forty four years old, gets stabbed, and uh, her husband just said, "I'm sorry, you're never going back." You know, it's just not worth the risk. And there are risks, but there are also risks just of engagement. With the, you know, the whole process is just so damn demanding. And energizing, though, too. And I have complete faith in you that this is the right timing for you. I don't I wouldn't have said that, you know, 160 episodes ago. I think you were completely capable and tremendously interesting for people that age. But nonetheless, I think that you're ready now and I think it's going to be cool and I mean, you've you've faced some challenges, you know. Um, I I I have a good vibe about this. And my son, we went to the reason why we were in town in the first place was we were going to my sister-in-law's graduation from Votech. She's a nurse now, and my son did not take his nap and was in a mood. So I took him out because I don't play this bullshit where he screams and cries and I disrupt everybody else's time with his nonsense. I take him out 
uh, and we we hung out in the lobby for a bit. And while we were hanging out in the lobby, the door opens and a woman walks out. This woman looks nothing like his mother at all. It's good looking. So they have that in common, but nothing else, really. And he goes, mommy? And I say, no, that's not your mommy, kid. That's the seeing the woman reminded him of his mother. Yeah. You see what I'm yeah. saying? Like, so all of a sudden now he wanted his mom. And I said, no, your mom's inside. We we're out here. And I had been feeding him applesauce. And when I said, no, your mom's inside, he looked at me and he went and he spit the applesauce all over me. So I've been doing that for two years. I don't have very much pride left. <laughs> well, you know, that's good. I think that's good because that may not be one of the, our most valued, you know, valued survival skills, you know, it's. Mm -hmm. um, no, I, well, I, I actually, I did, just real quick though, for listeners, I, I don't, I don't want to insinuate that taking a public school job is somehow to, to me, this feels uh, I have felt a great sense of of calm and purpose since I was contacted about this job and subsequently hired for it. Uh, it feels absolutely correct to me. I agree with you 100%. I do think that the difference between me when we started this and the me now is substantial. And the me that I am now <clears throat> is well-equipped to, to to do this job and to do a good job. I'm going into it with a little bit, you know, that good fear, the, the sacredness of good fear is a phrase that you used that I'm going to use from now on. I have some of that good fear, but I also have, a. am allowing myself to have a little bit of naive optimism about the whole yeah. thing, you know, like, good. like, you know, everybody's in a hurry to tell you how stressful it's going to be and how, uh, you know, how bad some of the kids can be. And you want to tell them, yeah, I know that, but let me be optimistic. What's, what's wrong with that? Well, I, I did share a little bit of, of this, uh, just very, very elliptically with Lisa, because she's so important to me and you're so important to me. And she's a right. career teacher. And she said, look, absolutely in support in advance support mm -hmm. of what you just said do mm -hmm. not listen to the eeyore depressive broken down worried people who are really the problem in the school system and they're in every job they're in every they're in the post office for we enshrined that is the post office all those people no no it's not anthony my postman is out there in 112 degree heat you know kind of kicking butt and and, and listening to you know you know, Farrell Williams, you know, or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't, don't listen to people who are negative, particularly people who are coming from the, the friendly side, the kindness side. And mm -hmm. yet they're so perversely uh, negative, cynical, and sold on the hopelessness of, of people. You know, don't do that. You know, you're going to be good because you're going to find some good allies. And, and that's the thing. You're going to be great with the students, no doubt. But no you doubt. would need to find a couple of faculty colleagues that are not doing the down in the dumps thing because, you know, and 
just be bold and just go, no, I'm not doing you. I'm not mm-hmm. doing you. I I have the good heart. I have the strength. I have the inner purpose. And I know this is important. And I'm sorry you are so uh, shriveled and, you know, you've collapsed morally inside. And I just am not going to be part of your implosion. You know, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't. If I if I didn't think that I had something to give and if I didn't think that this could be a net benefit for those kids coming in the room uh, if this was look, just another job I, i'd work at freaking target man you know i would just get i would get a job that i didn't care about i care about this and um i think that that's going to show and uh it'll be very interesting this this podcast i think will be a nice document of my segue into this stage of my life but i i'm a uh keeping the sacredness of good fear close i i am i'm extremely optimistic and i'm i'm extremely ready to go dude like i'm yeah. ready to start this thing yesterday i was telling uh my my wife this the other day i was like the only thing that's bothering me right now is i'm like i'm putting things into boxes in my house and i'm kind of i'm wandering around but i'm ready to i'm ready to just if they if they said tomorrow you have to go into the classroom i would say okay cool what am I, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm ready That's, to go. When you hear the horn blow, you better be ready to go. That is the only spirit that the gods listen to. You know, everyone's worried about God. I'm talking about gods, all of the spirits, all of the ghosts, all of the ancestors. That's the, that's the spirit they listen for. Absolutely. Yeah. Do right you have, there. thank you. Do you have a band and an aphorism for us today? I'm a, yeah, and after this wonderfully optimistic, and I, I think <laughs> this is why we are really optimistic. I, I there's a few sort of moments of darkness. Let's this go. band is called the Community, mm. and their first album is called Dis appear but the a is the little at sign and mm. peer is p-e-e-r okay disappear i get yeah that's your cohort and here's the deal a superficially edm group that mixes dubstep hard style and dark rave into an operatic concept story about a group of teens that create their own social media platform goes quietly and insidiously viral. Then everyone participating begins to blink out of existence as if lost in some paraphysical black hole. Fans don't just vanish. They were never here at all. And the memory decay factor speeds up the more recently someone has joined the community. All the music is backmasked or underlaid with a version of itself running backwards with progressive decay so that there's a constant subliminal Doppler effect of lost ghost sounds fading and fading beneath the ever-present slightly eccentric and oppressive beats that's your best one yet that sounds like a brian evanson short story or it could be a brian evanson novel uh 
that to me, it rides that fine line between, and it's perhaps because I do listen to EDM and dubstep frequently, that feels like a project that I can really picture. And it's probably one of you, it's, it's definitely your spookiest band yet. Uh, if not one of the more spooky imaginative uh, challenges you've come up with. So bravo on that one. You dig it. I'm glad you dig it. And I, I think we should give a shout out to Brian. Uh, Brian Evanson is a, is a writer. Uh, I've never met Brian, but we have some exchanges via social media. I'm certainly a fan of his. Um, it also bears a little bit of influence, I think, from Tad Williams' uh, series, Otherland which really I think was kind of a, a, the best computer simulation sort of extravaganza uh, that never got turned into, you know, the phenomenal success of the matrix and on and on. I think and that on. one won a, that one won a PKD award. I think I want to say. It should have. I, I think t- I, I, I'm, I don't know much about Tad's fantasy writing, but I, I did read that. So, uh, it, the books are a bit bloated. Um, I think he ended up sort of getting married to his British editor in the midst of that and maybe uh-huh. needed a bit more editing or something. But there there are some wonderful things in that. And I think he's a great writer who, kind of like Rudy Rucker, I think that out of the people who really hit the big time, you and I both, in terms of 1990s cyberpunk or speculative fiction, post-Ballard, you know, speculative fiction, uh, we kind of like the kind of missed the huge commercial payoff of the matrix and and on and on and on um other but, land is yeah, uh, over I, I over think, a million words by the way just throwing that out there i just looked it up on wikipedia the tetralogy is over a million words yeah see it's just too yeah it just well we were mentioning another writer off my coop you know i i really think that uh editing and the discipline of of crunching and really not blowing out huge books is so valuable and i i really take that very i mean i just spent so much you know hours and years of painstaking work and uh i think now people should bleed for their words i really do i think that and one of one of the workshops i i actually do um is we we carve you know we mm-hmm. stone carve and believe me, people do not run off the mouth, you know. Uh, and I actually, the, the people who donated, when I really did the success with the people who donated the chisels and hammers for this, uh, do a, quite a, a significant business in beautiful tombstones, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're using really state-of-the-art tools. But you, the idea was you need a little bit of real appreciation of, you know, from a Flintstone level. So all of that bloatedness of these giant books is just too much. But some of these other writers, and I think that is a kind of a cool premise of, you know, and I, I for me, I, I love the idea of the community being something that has tremendously positive uh, associations. And we have used that term and I use it all. But I think it's also, if you say the community, you know there's a kind of a i start looking around i start thinking wait a minute i'm not in an alley 
but why do I feel like I'm in an alley? You know? <laughs> and I'm starting to mm-hmm. think about, oh, maybe I'm in a room or a house. And I think, well, is there a back entrance? You know, the, the mm-hmm. community just makes me a little bit, puts me on that sort of, you know, old, old alert, you know? Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. And your aphorism for today? All right, here we go. I got two because the first one's a bit, well, I, I was a little bit upset. You can maybe. Oh. First one is if you want to feel good, you might have to do some good. Yeah. And I'll explain that because you and I, I we have talked about it like when we've sort of found out that some people we know really are artificially supported with family money or mm-hmm. are part of the system that they claim to be arguing against. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've run into this a few times lately, and I'm now to a kind of, uh, well, I don't have 36 more summers, David, you know, I don't, and now no one would have expected I would be here now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a little bit, um, this is the one thing that sags my optimism. It, it, it takes the, the, a little bit of, of riff out of my sails, a little bit of luff. You know, it, mm-hmm. it makes me not want to put up the spinnaker. I, I really don't like, and I hate to say this, there, there is a certain political direction with the people I'm thinking of who are preaching principles in one direction, and they are either taking money from family sources that are in the absolute opposite direction, or they are directly working in industries that I think are very questionable. And I, frankly, for all the mistakes I've made in my life, and there are many, many mm-hmm. on multiple mm-hmm. levels, I'm not so convinced they're on the moral, ethical level. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I'm not going to concede that. I think that, that that's... Uh, I'm I'm feeling more and more secure that way. So I was a little bit snarky, a little bit upset with with things that sort of, you know, I said it's 109 degrees and it's the sun's going down. But here's a more positive one. And I thought of you with this, you know, going back to not just, well, you're not going back to school, really. You're going into a whole new gig, but in a part of the world that you have a special capability and calling. I think a minister calling almost to get back to and help Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. real innocence is cool that stays cool in the face of inevitable sorrow and decay even depravity and violence it's the ever strength encouragement of the secret thing an arrowhead black dice a decoder ring Mm. I like that. I like that. That's you're on fire tonight. That's another really good one. I don't know how much I necessarily have to add to that because I think it's very well said. I do like that at the end of that, you bring it back towards these items from childhood, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I love anything right now as is evidenced by the conversation we had a few minutes ago, I do like things that posit or phrases saying stories that posit a kind of uh, innocence as a strength rather than a weakness. I think that's, I think that's 
I think, <laughs> I think that we've spent too long positing weakness as a strength instead of innocence as a strength. I think that innocence naturally can lead to a kind of victimhood just by virtue of a roll of the dice. But I think it's that victimhood that has taken over this kind of innocence. So you get this milieu where victims are both praised as being strong for having overcome their victimhood, but also a kind of arm's length caginess around innocence itself so as to avoid the supposedly inevitable victimhood that will result from that innocence. So I think that was a really cool aphorism. I'm glad you dig it. And it's, um, I, I think it is important to get back to that sort of childhood magic. One of my two key high school girlfriends who is sadly died in a major car accident, just a wonderful musician, a wonderful lover, a wonderful everything. She was an orphan abandoned at Glide Memorial Church in San Francisco on Christmas Eve. Mm. And she fell on all four paws or two feet or whatever. Um, but one of the first things she did when we got sort of cozy was she showed me and shared with me some of her girl magic, you know, and it was fabulous. The first piece was a Tiger Beat magazine cover that had a jackknife that she'd thrown into it. She was very hardcore. It was just wonderful. It was wonderful. She really had girl magic, you know, and not like unicorns and I don't know. Those are all nice too. I don't mean to diminish anyone's magic, but you know what I mean. But you've got to come back for your imaginative challenge. This is... Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. What is my imaginative challenge? Okay. All right. Well, this is because you're going off to, uh, you know, you're going to have to put on your Lawton pants and keep them on in front of younger people, by the way. That's one of the key rules. Just, just, that's all teachers need to do. All male teachers. Just keep your pants on. Mm -hmm. All right. You become scrambled in time. Something like Vonnegut's Billy Pilgrim, but much more pointed and personal and intermittent. Sudden abrupt ruptures might find you in the presence of Gus at your age now, Rios as a little girl of eight, and your mom at 21. You've been in the same room with Gus, Rios, and your mom. Okay. Now just imagine that scenario. You and I might reverse in ages. You could go to your first class in your new life and find that all the teenagers you expect are senior citizens and you're 17. These episodes may not last long. They are of uncertain and eccentric duration by definition. You have no control over when they happen. or do you? Must you find some way to navigate these time shifts in order to avoid insanity or suicide? So I think you might 
pick one major time shift, take us through that, and maybe give us a hint of, of you know, in a TV sense of what's happening next. I mean, how long does the normal time frame that you're in last? Give us a sense of the physics of this a little bit, okay? Do you do you have any questions? It's complicated. It's complicated, but it's fun too. It's got a definite playful element and it's very open-ended. So no, I don't have any questions. Just to reiterate what it is, it's that I am caught in a kind of quantum leap time situation, but instead of being transported into other bodies, uh, I'm still I'm still in my body, but time is wibbly wobbly, and old people Absolutely. become young. Maybe Gus is an adult, Rios is a girl, my mom is a is a you know young adult, and my I particularly task... like that one. I particularly like that scenario because I think that's massive Freudian complications. Oh, Back to the Future style. Well, no, if Gus is, is your age now, Rios is eight and your mom is 21. I mean, you've got a lot of real issues to deal with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, but yeah, no, I mean, I get it for sure. So okay. I'm All good right. to go. You ready okay. to hear your text message back to you? Yeah. All right. New notes. Artificial, artifice. Superficial, superfice. Do we ever think of the superfice? Might this term, might this be the term and the frame for modernity? And another way of seeing de Chardin's notion of the noosphere in practical working fact. Let's stop right there for a second. The superfice. Where does an idea like that come from? Are you just are you playing with words when you do things like that? No, no, I'm not really. Uh, well, I suppose uh, I mean, I, and I'm all I think you're all in favor of playing with words, too. I, yep. I went back to uh, one of our great heroes, uh, William James, and I'm thinking that I, you know, one of my remaining life goals, at least on the intellectual front, might be trying to be Zeno to my Parmenides might be William James because the more I dig into his stuff, I just, I'm absolutely astonished. What a wonderful human being and, and just luminous mind. There's so many things I didn't know, but uh, shusness as in S C I O U S N E S S is one of his ideas. One of his many, many ideas. Um, which he admits traverses common sense. I love that phrase. I want to be traversing common sense at every, you know, every moment. Uh, so I think the idea of looking at word forms as in wordplay is, is completely legitimate as a way of, of uncoding, decoding, and recoding the principal code that we have access to. But it seems to me that all of the technology that we consider part of, all that the technology that my students consider technology, which is really computerization, the digital revolution, really anything that their smart their smartphone is the emblematic control center of that. That's 
they can hold that in their hand. They're not thinking of digital networks. They're not thinking of, of giant AI farms, you know, server farms. They're not thinking of, of the, the electrical engineering, the software development. Of, they're, they're, they're really thinking of the core thing of just what they can hold in their hand. And I think that, that one way to think of that is that all of it is predicated upon photography, the movement towards the superfice a constant mm -hmm. reproduction world. No one thinks about, and we'll get to this point because it's, it's in the notes a little bit. No one thinks about the, the, the photographic reproduction ideas anymore. I mean, you have to be, you know, printing out signs and going, talking to, uh, you know, someone at a, at a major print production company. And even then you're not really talking about much. You're talking about a few lines of computer jargon. DPI, you know, blah, blah, blah. you know, mm -hmm. you're not really, but the assumption is that images can be endlessly repeated. There is no original. I mean, this is why, you know, one of the reasons why fine arts photography has just kind of dropped out forever is there is no negative. You know, remember that there were a lot of, of stories and TV shows, you know, we've got to get the negative, the original. Nah, that's all gone now. We don't, that's not a plot. Uh, trope premise that we will you know really deal with ever again no one ever even thinks about that I don't there are many MFA programs in photography where nobody has any darkroom skills whatsoever mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you don't know the smell of the chemicals and uh why they smell dangerous my one great friend of mine said you know they smell like women I don't know what kind of women. I think I'd get locked up for saying that, but they're dangerous and they're, they fascinate me. And I said, I, you know, Henry, I think you, you got to come out of the dark room. Let's go, let's go have a drink and, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. watch. And he goes, oh, oh yeah. Okay. Right. But he had a point, you know, that there is some sensual physicality to the notion of imagery, which has been completely degraded down level, down level, down level. And I think what we've seen in, in one way maybe is an enormously speeded up, and remember photography gave us that ability to think like that, mm -hmm. an enormously speeded up evolution. And we're starting, I mean, because this is the major, major element of communication in the modern era, I think it's important that the evolution maybe be emblematic and analogous to uh, all of human evolution just super speeded up and yeah. we've gotten to a point where i mean what would the internet what would anything be like if you remove imagery you know and it was just text just text well and this is precisely why in my uh you know the last mfa workshop i did i brought i had i got some help uh with the equipment I brought in Morse code signalers and people at first just freaked out. I said, no, no, no. I mean, we're going to just, we're going to write something together using Morse code. This is, we're going to get really crude and simple and basic and see how, you know, with what kind of facility we can build something. And in the end, it was very, very powerful, but we've lost even the text idea. I mean, it's just, Everything has become so instantaneous and transparent that then there's no need for the communication at all. 
I mean, it's, but it's not even telepathic. It's just like, yeah, it's the same message blinking again and again and again. It's more like the static nature of a billboard that never gets changed out in the middle of the desert, you know, for a casino that's long closed, you know, that's, I think that's kind of where our, our communication and our language is really headed that way. Um, but the superfice, I think, is, is ultimately a mindset that assumes that all grammars, all syntaxes of any kind must be invisible, transparent, and instantaneous. So they are like uh, idiomatic expressions and hence the, the enormous rise in slang. If you have to have it explained, well, there's no, sorry, that doesn't work. So we're gonna bring everything to the level that you don't need anything explained, but it could be completely jargonized or abbreviated and abbreviations form a huge part, as you know, of my, my next phase of thinking. And we've talked about how abbreviations are the mother or father of all confusion, you know? They're the entity that that produces confusion because it's and it, it's not just a gloss, and there is no such thing as a gloss or uh, you know a synopsis. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. all of those are enormously strange ideas, absolutely uh, bizarre ideas in the minds of of ancient people. For instance, I would suggest I think that wouldn't register at all. So the superfice is technology-based, technology-enabled, but it it really is a deep mindset of disengagement with physical texture, context, time, and the kind of space that the bodies we might hold in our arms in love occupy. That's great. That's great. As you were saying, it goes on Photography has opened miraculous windows of vision, the crab nebula in Orion, the jeweled crown of a milk droplet falling, a single taste bud on a tongue. What would medical diagnostics be without x-rays, CAT scans, and MRIs? And yet, it's impossible to avoid the fact that as these techniques have become more pervasive, actual day-to-day -day physical alertness and attention have greatly diminished or adopted very narrow is it foci or foci foci yeah foci of all the elements i emphasize in my classes this is the note that rings loudest and most tellingly with my students they are literally hungry for seeing on their own tiny things incidental things what is incidental and unimportant what does a message what does a message mean if it's not clearly freighted with the social import current this week as a field of human inquiry, this is one key aspect of aesthetics, and it's remarkable how little attention this field has received over the last 50 years. Susan Sontag's On Photography and John Berger's Ways of Seeing leap out as core texts still. Do we even think of photography slash film as a process anymore? And then we go into the digital revolution, but I want to pause there for just a moment to talk about the narrowing down of focus that is allowed by technology and how you mentioned that your students and young people that you work with seem to be hungry for that. So they 
in their perception, they have outsourced, to use a word I use a lot, that facility to technology. And and they want that kind of Columbo Sherlock Holmes ability to really observe and interpret back. They want to get that back because now they can't find the pizza place down the street without Google Maps. Exactly. Ex- look, and, and this is a big uh, rave and rev up for you for, for getting in touch with students. I really, in almost, well, not, not 100%, but of course, but I have tremendous respect for my students. I have tremendous disrespect for my colleagues who are truly, I believe, putting forward a program in certainly in the humanities of very uh, simple-minded social indoctrination that I think is very, very weak. But a lot of people just aren't interested in teaching. But if you are interested in teaching, and that means you're interested in listening, what students love to do is they love to play and they love to compete. You know, particularly students of color, they have been passed and looked over and just given, yeah, you go ahead. We don't want any trouble with you, you know, and they want to engage. They want the ball. They want the ball. They want to play. They want to. And so when they're challenged to see something in a room that no one else sees, and then to talk about why that thing reached out, mm. why did they notice that? That's a very simple opening of class exercise. Very simple. You can spend just, you know, Five minutes or, or 15 if you want. But I, if, you, if you've ever seen a real feeding frenzy of fish, you know, in, in clear water, that is what it's like. It is just this hunger to be asked some of these real, you know, and, a, and it's interesting because the most introverted, you know, who... And often you can you can just see the posture, you know, right away. They're the ones who will come out and finally, because I'm relentless, you know, I just say, look, you know, I'm 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 like a crustacean, I'm not giving up here, you know. And they get with that because they realize oh, I'm gonna either have to drop the class or deal with this guy, you know. <laughs> and and my kids are not gonna have that luxury. Yeah, so mm-hmm. This is, you know, the thing and they get with the program and they start looking around and they start riffing and then they start, you know, not just getting positive feedback from me, but they start to feel the vibe. And this is also how how I build a classroom tribal vibe very quickly. And you can feel the energy of support because people do just instinctively go, Wow. Now that you mentioned that, you know, that is kind of weird, you know, and they they have shared something so much more important about their values, their mindset, their perspective than, well, these are my pronouns, you know, it's like, <laughs> eh, yeah, 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 yeah. And we can see your skin color and yeah, 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 yeah. You know, but there are a lot of people who look like you, you know, I always said, you know, everybody, nobody's all that unique, you know. And if you were, Vegas is a good place to be that and make some money off it, you know, and then everyone shuts up, you know, and moves on. So I think that's really, but I do wonder, 
why we aren't emphasizing this how to look, how to see, how to engage. I mean, I got it, of all of the aspects of teaching that I've been exposed to over the last 10 years, visual literacy is the phrase in, in academia. I just think that is so pathetic, I can barely cope with it because it means something so narrow. At the start of the show, every people would know I give David five words to, uh, and he has to sneak in two across the course of the show. And the ones tonight are particularly, well, you would, on the surface, they're very linked. And I said to David, jokingly, there's a theme at work. And, and he goes, yeah, I kind of got that, you know. <laughs> but this is the problem. I mean, there was really a theme here. And it's, and it's funny. And he said it jokingly. But the way we teach so-called visual literacy today is so illiterate, simple-minded, and rhetorically freighted from one particular social point of view that is fashionable at the moment. Uh, it really doesn't have any significance at all. Whereas if you look back at Susan Sontag's book, if you look back at some of, you know, we often talk about, you know, the great humanists, the exciting minds coming out of the 60s and 70s of Terence McKenna and John Lilly, and a lot of really interesting fringe science people. Well, there were some really hot humanities-minded people who were really showing us new ways of looking. The intro essay to the Ralph Eugene Meat Yard, uh, I turned David mm -hmm. on to Ralph Eugene Meat Yard, the photographer, uh, from Kentucky, and we did an episode, a couple of one back. Um, some of that writing is so good in terms of critical analysis and insight. And I, I think Tashin Books is doing some of the best stuff. Uh, I'm always willing to sort of rave and, and, and really promote them. But in general terms, it seems like the crass, the more pervasive and maybe this is just a rule, a social rule, social physics, the more pervasive a technology of communication becomes, the crasser the results. Could be that simple. It, I've never heard it put that bluntly before, but I think, I think that's the truth. And I think that the solution to that then is to stop technology <laughs> where it is. We're mm. good. We've got yeah. enough. Um, we've definitely got enough. I like that a lot. It, which leads nicely into this. Do we even think of photography slash film as a process anymore? The digital revolution has totally subsumed the printing slash reproduction revolution in imagery. And now we've moved completely into the realm of enhanced imagery, CGI, and AI modified and fully generated images, the superfice. Like characters in sci-fi shows wondering if their computer simulations, as they get blown to bits, our world gets ghostlier and more absurd by, by the day, every day. Meanwhile, people can't pay their bills. Behavioral disorder, children's tantrum, tantrums are real enough. A teenage girl commits suicide because she doesn't look like an influence on TikTok. And city streets are filled with squalor that certainly smells real. Students of color in my classes continually share their coded word faces. 
DEI to them means photos in university brochures and on the website. They see no genuine interest in retention rates, graduation successes, test scores, achievement, and career placement. Image alone has become content enough, despite the fact that most people are, are aware that imagery is often utterly artificial. Is this another, albeit giant, case of something magical, even sacred, becoming profane through massive overuse? Is the democratizing of miracles really a good thing? So it seems to me that the, the fact that these kids don't care about their futures, their successes, their careers, what have you, and they just care about the image, it's definitely a kind of presentism that is brought on by these images. Oh, oh wait, no, no, let, let me clarify. Mm -hmm. They care... Their assertion is that the university doesn't care. Their assertion is that their that 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 faces means just an insincere attempt on the part of this state university of thirty five thousand students, thirty thousand students, to simply present a diversity, equity, and inclusion front. But that all of the realities that might be you know of driving that. Um, Student satisfaction and, and contentment, graduation, huh. graduation might be kind of important. Um, we have one of the lowest graduation rates of um, particularly African-Americans, uh, which is remarkable given the, you know, the number of students accepted. So you would think that some of these administrators on, you know, very high six figures often would sometimes be thinking, uh, well, maybe we should actually get more black students uh, graduating, you know, because it doesn't look so good when we take them in. And then what happens to them? Oh, we don't we never even ask what happens to them when they disappear. Right. So, I mean, that's the thing. It's not that the students aren't caring. They, they are cynical about the adult presentation of imagery as being fact. So they're not fooled. Interesting. So this asymmetry between the faculty and the students or the administrators, I should say, and the students feels a lot to me like the cynicism and the nihilism that was around materialism when I was growing up, when Fight Club was a popular movie. And it seemed like the thing that people wanted you to do, that the man wanted you to do, was to get a nine to five office cubicle job and buy a bunch of, bunch of stuff from Ikea that you don't really need. Their version of that because so much of it is digital, has moved from material possessions, and by that I mean tables and chairs and clothes and that kind of thing, into a kind of cynicism and nihilism about, about their image and the way their image is going to be used. Their version of getting into the cubicle is having their, uh, their image, their, out, their exterior uh, used as a kind of uh, well, as a as a cog in a big machine that that keeps these administrators in their high six figures. Absolutely, and I think that you have uh, done what you do so well. Last episode we called "Lasers on the Prairie," and I think I was really referring just to David directly in that as a kind of laser 
on the prairie. I know. I just like that. I, I, I pick out phrases that I like that you say, and I make them the title. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, I think that was good. I think you deserve that, that title. And it was a good title for the episode, but I think using a very simple, well, it's not simple for everyone, but it, it really is simple and it can be very, very clearly visualized. And I think this is where a lot of my thinking with my new writing is going, is trying to get some, some, analogy where i need analogies and models uh to work with i want to get them so clear they can be visualized and i'm thinking that david with his diagrammatic skills might be called upon he doesn't know that yet he just found out but i think the use of the word asymmetry is very very helpful because it, it suggests that something enormously complicated and it may be it, that there are certainly levels then you know downstream to explore but the first thought is really there is an asymmetry. And, and we started off the, the whole series, you know, 160 episodes you know, ago, talking about schisms and, and fundamental chasms uh, in, in contemporary culture. And I think that in a way, asymmetry is, is a much um, clearer way to start thinking about it because it's, it sounds more hopeful it sounds as if something could be adjusted or at least i think it can just be aesthetically and analytically grasped in a way that a chasm you know and i live near the grand canyon so there's no resolving the grand canyon i'm, I'm faced with that that to me is i'm kind of moving from the chasm schism to asymmetry in a kind of venn diagram sort of sense Mm -hmm. And I think that was a beautiful way to put it. And I think that, for instance, you could run a workshop on pitching that idea to a few people, get them out with butcher paper and pens or whatever of, of certain kinds, and let them try to define that asymmetry visually. And I think if you had, you know, 50 to 100 of those and sort of composited them, you'd have a very, very interesting mandala, mm -hmm. you know, a more complex labyrinth mosaic rendition of that idea that I think would really, really be interesting. Uh, and I think that's the kind of thinking, because we can't really give up media and imagery, but we can do imagery that is more engaged. Mm -hmm. We can do that. We can certainly be potlucking and potlatching imagery. We can be uh, interrogating our own assumed knee-jerk, splat-at-the-wall visions of things. And we can also have fun and play with them in a more innocent, self-accepting way of going, yeah, you know, well, you know, I mean, someone said to me the other day, you know, pine trees are racist. And I thought, well, you know, that sounds either really interesting or completely insane to me. Or both. Yeah. And mm -hmm. this is where the symmetry, this is where the Venn diagrams come in. And I think this is where we need to, this is ultimately one of the big tools I think we're presenting. It's not my tool for this week, but I think it's a big tool for our discussion about photography. And I think we're coming kind of moving to an end of that now. But this might be a way to round up. We need to re-engage with visualization that is not out of the box. 
and I mean our phone. And I'm speaking to myself that way. I'm a compulsive shooter, as Dennis Hopper said. I do try to make some money off my photographs. I've had exhibitions. I've been in National Geographic. I don't know. I, I understand really enjoying photography. But I think there's another more primitive step back almost to uh, the caves of Altamira, to, to really getting in touch with symbols and abstractions and our own emblematic thinking. That's my key word is, is emblematic thinking, uh, which I draw on from Emerson, very different than symbolic thinking. And to really start using some of these diagrammatic skills. And I think, David, you're beautifully positioned for this because you do good diagrams and you think diagrammatically, even, I don't know, even if you've got chaos in your, in your head, sometimes uh, you've, you've got a very focused form of dealing with that, which is, I think, a really great skill. But it's also something that could be really fun and be, could, could become its own kind of new art form. And I'm thinking of a variation on Mark Lombardi's work. Dave Lombardi, and I yeah. About him. Yeah. Um, but, and it's, uh, it's a semic writing. It's, it's Rongo, Rongo. It's, it's breaking with linearity of, of language in a text sense, but it's breaking with a very peculiar hidden, hidden linearity of the visual image. That's, can you can you tease apart the differences between symbolic and emblematic thinking? Yeah, I, I can try. I mean, this is this is really something I'm digging into hard. Okay. Symbolism. Well, let me give you okay. When I was uh doing my guest lecturing thing at Seattle University, and I think I mentioned some of this. There were some pieces of, of work from other classes up on the boards. They were on the side, so they weren't behind me or, you know, and I wasn't, I was just a guest and, and the, the, the host faculty member didn't feel inclined to do anything with them. One was a series of um, what I just happened to know are linear algebra uh, equations. Um, and I'm not going to apologize for knowing what why it was that branch of math and not another. And another board, there was a Hello Kitty sort of style, little drawing. And my host didn't feel any inclination to erase those. And I thought, oh, okay, I understand that. And uh, sort of. Um, but I thought, you know, it's interesting with the Hello Kitty sort of caricature cartoon thing. I mean, and I think I, we did have, we have talked about this on the show. I thought, you know, if it was a swastika or, a, you know, a caricature version of a penis, for instance, there would have been something that would have necessitated a response. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that valence, that, that meaning is not inherent in the symbol itself. We know that because swastikas have had many different meanings over the years, including some enormously positive ones, you know, right. anciently. I mean, that's, it's not, you know, so symbols require an infrastructure of abstraction, kind mm -hmm. of like the scaffolding that you might see, even the bamboo scaffolding you might see even in downtown Shanghai today. You think, oh, hmm, it's, it is not enclosed in its own reference point. 
nor is it really an open system. It's a completely dependent system. Whereas right. an emblem is unto itself. An emblem is witness to itself. It has meaning unto itself. It is not a reference point to something else in a semiotic sense. It's neither a sign nor a symbol. It's a sigil. Mm -hmm. And Borges wrote a couple of, of, of his best pieces about this, but it is an emblem is anything. And, and the best synonym I can think of is, is a totem. And when I stayed with indigenous people, and I was really fortunate enough to meet some people who were still so vital and alive, even the older. And we talked about some of the, the thinking about totems and how anthropologists have, have talked about them and to what extent they got it right and to what extent they were simplifying or misrepresenting. And an old bloke with beautiful, just that white hair and that ancient look, I mean, really a 60,000 year old man. He slaps me on the leg and goes, I will say it simply, a totem is good to think, to travel with. And I thought, aha. And that ties back to my earlier aphorism about the secret things of childhood. You'll notice all of those things are things you can carry in a pocket, you know? They're, they're, they, they're, they have the portability. So that's what we're talking about is portable magic, portable magic that speaks for itself, that has a kind of currency unto itself. You know, think really hard about what, what a bartering economy would really be like and the invention <laughs> of money. Think how I picked up, I had a $1 bill in my hand and it really, it was just like this old, really just, tawdry crack horse sort of thing that just should have been i almost felt like it would have been kind to burn it you know as a, but it was, it's a symbol of something it has meaning because of that think about things that have just you know pure meaning unto itself i mean this is not uh i mean this is just on the one hand a basic harmonica which you could just go get or do. no it's not no, it's not. And if you could feel it, and if it were really, if I mean, if someone really could play it, you'd understand it. But I think you could, I think you could understand that just holding. See, this is what we're talking about. And this is also, a, David is holding up a piece of magic that is just wonderful. I'm going to let him describe it in a moment. But this is another example of one of my key ideas that the notion of being able to understand a code is not simply being able to decipher or translate a message. It's being able to send a message back in that code. It's a very, very old idea. It's very, it was very important to the people, uh, our key intelligence people during world war ii it goes back to sherlock holmes and the adventure of the dancing it's an old idea but we need to remember that understanding is not being able just to listen it's being able to play the game and this is absolutely essential to the whole idea of communication and memory and how it works david's first instinct was to hold up a totem from his world and i'm going to just let him describe that 
it is a trickster guardian figure that I purchased on a Pueblo reservation in Taos, New Mexico, carved out of pine by the shop owner's son. It depicts a man in clown-like face paint carrying a knife in his right hand. It's a cool Rorschach test when I show people this thing because some people see the knife first and they miss the smile and they miss that he's carving up a watermelon with the knife. Yeah. And, yeah. and, I, and I like that about him because he does have this alarming look to him. You'll notice that one boot is painted red. It's kind of hard to see in this light. And no, no, the other I got it. Yeah, one is, is green. Yeah, but right? like the watermelon. So he's got these mismatched shoes, these great frilly boots, uh, and a lot of fringe and just a total look of uh, the kind of shaman that you would see in native tribes or even, you know, in some Korean or Japanese traditions. And he has been uh, protecting and keeping my office and my house company since we brought him back. And I got nothing but good vibes from him. When I went into the Pueblo, into the shop to instantly called out to me and the woman behind the counter, very savvy businesswoman could tell that I was looking at him, but also at a piece of jewelry for Rios. And she said, Hey, if you buy that more expensive piece of jewelry, I'll cut the price off of him in half. And I said, well, you got a deal. So I held that up to Chris. Well, you know, Having described him and considering the context of the conversation that we were just in, I will follow that spirit now and allow listeners to decide why I held my friend up for Chris to see. Well, it's just a great example of, of and I think that one of the things that, that the notion of emblem and the emblematic calls us to is, is performance mm -hmm. rather than explanation. Mm -hmm. all writers i think should understand that in terms yes. of showing, not telling uh you know it, it really is an essential aspect of the whole human stories based on on performance that's where language comes from you didn't just sit you know think about it uh and i'm, I'm i really want to do this workshop where say i don't know i think 10 to 12 people would be perfect go away and i think we need I'd like to see four dedicated days and then one day of debrief and one day of play, more casual debrief. But the goal is people have to invent a new language, you know, and just even facing even small bits of that challenge are really, really difficult. But the emblem idea really confronts the core problem. You know, Heraclitus said, you can't step in the same river twice. And we get that and we go, oh, yeah, you know, and it it's both beautiful, but it becomes a platitude. And yet think about that. If we really can't step in the same river twice, well, then why do we think we can? That's insane. Oh, I like means, that. That yeah. means that our whole program is predicated on a fundamental denial of obvious reality. And it tears and ratchets and scaffolds its way up from there. And the, the emblem is the call back to the question of, can anything 
not be unique. And that really reverses the great question of all Greek philosophy to begin with. Is the world one thing or many? Mm -hmm. you know? And they really took that view, that question really seriously. And I think we should too, because the way we start dividing things, and it starts so early, you know, Gus sees a female form and goes, you know, mom, you know, I mean, everything is, is predicated not just on the Gilbert Ryle idea of categories, which is language-based, way up of the ladder and a few years of, of, you know, experience in the world. But we pick all that, you know, shit up pretty quickly because we have to. But every once in a while, it's that single stone. Jay and I talked about this on, on his podcast, and it's the single stone, for instance, that, uh, you know, the horse factor Cheval started with the ideal palace, you know, that beautiful, you know, outsider art installation in France, one pebble, you know, and this is what the emblem calls us to is that that absolute mystery of uniqueness versus repetition, and how that amazing energy form oscillates backwards and forwards and isn't that the definition of what i mean it's for starters the absolute definition of what music is but i think it's what good living is it's certainly what good sex is it's what i think being in my frame it's what being morally feeling morally good absolutely yeah, good yeah, 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 you know yeah. uh <laughs> It, it, it's 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 not just harmony it's something much more it, it's meta harmony right that oscillation might help with my with my final question for this segment that we'll we'll move on to this because i did want to relate the heraclitus idea of never being able to step in the same river twice and the idea of are there ever uh not unique images even when repeated and even when in sequence how do you see that connecting or coming into conflict with the end of your note in which you question the democratization of miracles and the repetition of image as a kind of profanation of what could be the sacred art of technology right on the one hand we do have this idea of never stepping in the same river twice, but thinking that we can. But on the other hand, we have a thousand low polygon count photos of the same woman over and over again on Instagram. And we know something's off with that. But is there is there something to that? Is there something to the fact that there are all these very similar kind of banal images? Is there a way we can meld these two ideas? Well, it's something I was thinking about even before I started this, uh, the current book project and this this line of thinking about relating memory to alertness and the technological implications of the last, you know, 150 years. I was thinking about it from a pure photographic traveling tourist adventuring, uh, trying to be sincere and really exploring in a kind of explorers club sort of way, or just being really the most conscientious observer of the world that I could be. And I wondered why certain places could just get photographed out 
I just think that they somehow really have gotten their souls stolen. It's just too, you know, it's just there's no way to salvage it. And yet there are places, both uh, so-called natural spaces and cultural human-made places that I think somehow just transcend uh, our, our attempts to capture them in terms of, of photography and all of the other technologies that have developed since the internet, the instant access, the transparent, you know, artifact. I don't know what it is that may, and I think that it might, it probably is ultimately going to be somewhat subjective, but I don't think always of what, well, particularly how certain places manage to kind of psychically defend themselves against being looted. And I think there is maybe something in this when we talk about individuals in terms of charisma. You know, we we have talked about there are fact, you know, there are celebrities who are true stars, you know, and we just, I mean, I was just looking at a picture of Steve McQueen when he was dying of cancer at only 50. And he's still more man than a lot of people walking around today, you know, who are supposedly, you know, in that category. There's just something, there's just a character. He's a, he's an emblem, you know, mm -hmm. he wasn't a sex symbol or movie star. He's, he's an emblem. He's a core artifact of, of the larger magical uh, cosmic culture somehow in my view, but I don't know how certain things maintain their savor and their richness. But I think that sometimes we have to be willing to set up some barriers and, and not have everything inclusive. To me, the idea of inclusivity is just a horrifying idea. I think we need some private spaces. I think we need some forbidden spaces. I think we need places that are area unexplored because of ants or ghosts or, you know, you're not welcome here. I mean, what's wrong? That's not necessarily a bad message. Keep out, no trespassing. This is like a high voltage thing. We're willing to accept those messages in many contexts. So I think it's not a bad strategy. We need to protect and I think it's good that maybe people can't go see Komodo dragons so easily, you know? Um, I think that when they get, I mean, they're already kind of jaded because they see video, beautiful video and movies of them. And it's hard to recoup just the savagery and, and the smell of them. I mean, how many reptiles do you know that are big enough to actually have a smell? You know, that alone is like really, you got to go to like the crocodile alligator thing. And then you're probably really smelling their environment, not their bodies, you know? So I don't know. I think that we to re-sacredize imagery first in terms of emblem as opposed to symbol you know, artifice is okay. Superfice is becomes a cultural thing where you can't even find the artifice anymore. You don't. You don't even think about it. You assume it. You know, you assume it. I mean, no one thinks orange drink has anything to do with oranges. <laughs> and Dave right. Chappelle has a beautiful thing about purple drinks. You purple know? drink. I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. 
So we're so distanced from content and, and then we forget what, if you change the accent on content, what do you have, you know? Yeah. Are you ready for my challenge? I am. I'm time traveling with you. I'm, I've got my fingers crossed. It's all going to work out and you're going to deal with this weird time ripple thing that I've assigned you to. Cool. All right. I notice that something has gone wrong with time when I notice that my classroom is made up of senior citizens. And I, in fact, am now back to 17. I begin to develop a curriculum for them in which we learn backwards. It becomes a class of forgetting rather than a class of learning using late therapy and non sequiturs and absurdity. We're moving backwards. When I go home, I find that I'm back to being my age, but unfortunately, my son is now my age. Rios is a girl of eight, and my mother is 20 years old. We have to figure out how to fix this. We have to figure this out. And so being that we are in Lawton, Oklahoma, we decide to go to the Wichita Mountains and live out there as a crew together. And we begin to play a game every night with tarot cards in which each person is assigned a certain tarot card. And we sit in a square and we begin to fold the tarot cards out. We play this game at different points in the mountains. And the goal of the game is to make a line towards the center. The center can be a fire pit or a circle of stones or what have you. But as soon as we have reached that center, and the tower card is flipped within that circle, we know we've reached a point in space where everything could potentially go back to being right. The tower card's not known for that in the tarot, but we're working in reverse here because of everything that's happened. Now, our time in the wilderness, my son and I, we forage, we hunt, we look for things. Rios, even as a girl of eight years old, has sort of taken control of the whole operation, and she's bossing people around and this, that, and the other. And my mother has taken on, despite her young age, a very kind of grandmotherly role. And that's when it clicks for me. My mother, even at 20, I was beginning to make memories when my mother was 20. And she's always been a grandmother. She's always been caring. She's always been gentle. She's always been soft-spoken. She's always been a grandmother. Rio said, hey, eight, growing up in... Uh, South Central Los Angeles, e e well, I'm sorry, East Los Angeles, being left with her infant brother and sister while her mom went to work. My wife, even at eight years old, had to be a mother. So she's always been a mother. And my son, hunting with me and gathering with me, even when he's my age, he's always been my companion. So I find these things out Ooh. about them as we search for a way to get time back to the way that it was. Oh, I really like that. I think you really rounded up that really nicely. And, and really, you know, it's it sort of, um, well, it's, it doesn't sort of, it directly suggests that, that we form fairly early and, that's not the only form that we take, 
but there are some things that are really essential, you know, to us. And that really resonates with me because I, I wrote down before um, we got online that one of the key things about my approach to memory is that it relates directly to character. You know, it's not at all some sort of facility of, you know, like a pick and place robot of going to find that storage container full of these kinds of or, or finding it on a computer. I dismiss all of those. I mean, I think it's many things, but I think it is directly related to uh, issues of character, personality, spirit. And I think this is one of the great shortcomings of, of the really important um well, Freud and Jung to some to some extent. I think I certainly think Freud. I don't think he really explored that notion. It, it just was too. I, I think there's a real limitation there. But when you put memory in in direct connection with that, I think you've got something going. But I really liked that. I thought that was a very thoughtful response, and uh, I love that you took refuge that you had to get out of. You know, yeah, because yeah. it would, would have been yeah. kind of hard to explain. Yeah, it would have been hard to explain. And we have to find the space. The idea is that if time is wibbly wobbly, we have to find the space that is correct. Uh, I really like this this imaginative challenge to give credit where it's due is uh, inspired by, I'm about halfway through Tim Powers' novel, Last Call, in which gamblers play a game called Assumption, which is poker with tarot cards. And it's very interesting because the way that they play the game it's very similar to a five card draw, but players have the the ability to assume other people's hands to purchase hands off of other people. And then when when and if that particular hand wins, they're able to claim an assumption in which they, uh, well, in the context of the book at the beginning, you think it's just that they win a fraction of the pot, but it turns out to be something much more spooky and occulted as it goes on and this game of assumption that they're playing is actually it has ripples through through time through decades even uh through people growing into maturity and then becoming assumed you can kind of see where that's going yeah. but uh so yeah uh weird games with the tar i think the tarot is such an interesting and emblematic system as well the tarot is not symbolic it's emblematic um i, I think it's a great tool for for playing these kinds of games that you and I are talking about, right? I have a big curtain in my room that we got off the internet. It's a blanket and it's of the sun card, 21. And it hangs over and it's a, it's a young boy on a horse and the sun is looking down very stoically at the boy on the horse. And there's just something about that Rider Waite Smith deck that is just beyond all all symbols mm. and i think that once you get into that looking for the white car that's going to hit you type mode the tarot really becomes well this might be bad for a podcast but it becomes something that's kind of beyond words and it means something a little bit more which is i guess what fortune telling and divination really is well i think that's an interesting sort of direction to go to you know, in coming up soon from many, many different points of view. 
I think that, I mean, there's a whole uh, issue there with the compass, you know, which was originally, certainly from the Chinese point of view, a divination device and not really seen at all in, in, in terms of what we think of it now. So there's a lot of interesting sort of ways to go there. But I, and I think that one of the things that we really could do and need to do as sort of part of our larger mission, and it's going to help me a lot with my uh, book, is to really flesh out in, in, in very conversational 7-Eleven fluent terms what the distinction between the emblem, emblematic, and the symbol, symbolic, is. I think if, if we could really make, I think that would be an enormous contribution. Uh, other people have, have you know, a lot to say on this, but I think the way we will do it and, and peel it out is a good sort of uh, direction to, to move into, because it's enormously confusing to people. It's just enormously confusing. And they might not have any framework for ever thinking about it that way. But I think mm -hmm. we, we can pull out some situations, some analogies, some models, some situations that people would be familiar with, maybe all too familiar with, and show them uh, the difference and maybe what some emblematic therapy might look like. Absolutely. I would love to go in that direction. Do you have tools and tips for us today right i do and and i think that on this note i'm going to roll out a fairly significant tool which may need this kind of uh treatment a couple of bites of the apple uh one of the things that i do in my classes i will start with a quick think exercise two questions circulating at absolute rapid fire speed it's basic foreign language drill stuff it's uh, the CIA language drill program and the United Nations is, is based on this. But it's a good way just to wake people up, to connect people, you know, uh, to disconnect them from their phones and whatever they were doing the moment they stepped in the classroom and connect them. And some of my categories are really simple, you know, quick, a kind of fruit, kind of vocation, you know, a major, you know, foreign city. Uh, and it does work. It builds it, it builds morale, it builds rapport, it gets people thinking, it, it makes them a little bit less shy. But one of the interesting things is if you do this hundreds and thousands of times with people around the world, and I do insert some other odd, you know, categories. For instance, you know, something you might find in a drawer, you know, um, I'm always listening for how people form categories and how people make categories. I think this is building on the Gilbert Ryle thing is, is really, it, it's at the heart of everything. It's really at the heart of everything. But I, I have a rule that when anyone comes in late, they get to hear three responses and then they have to infer or deduce or induce this is a beautiful introduction to mm -hmm. where induction and induction crossover and oscillate back and forth now some things are easy you know okay you can do okay uh fruit or numbers yeah you, can, you know that's easy but i make it difficult and i move and always i have one kind of uh street rotter ghost apocalypse fringe figure of whatever kind of gender, but somebody who, who's 
the late person who's good at inference. And it kind of becomes kind of part of the show. And we hope that, you know, that person comes in late because when then we can put them to the challenge. Well, think about, you know, okay, if you go to games, think of the categorical difference between games and sport, sports. Hunting is a sport. Is it a game? You know, we get into some really, really deep issues. And here's the tool. It's the category inference tool. I think in order for a category to make sense at the fundamental playground level, we need to be able to infer it in exactly the context of my students. They get three possibilities, you know, more than two and less than four, the magic number of threes. But if a category isn't robust enough, sensible enough to be inferred from that, and it's not saying that there aren't other category descriptions, you know, people don't need to worry about that. But if someone can't give a credible answer, that's how categories work in practical terms. That's how people who aren't really all that thrilled about the philosophy of language and concept can get their hands around category decisions. You get three, you get to hear three words. What is the, the connection? If that's not clear, well, maybe there's something wrong with the category. And I think that's a beautiful, simple acid test. You know, you don't even need any acid. You just need a big, you know, a stone. You could smack, you know, it's just really blunt, primitive, effective. This is why teaching is going to be so cool for me, because I'm absolutely stealing the inference game for, for late students. I it's mean, terrific. It's so much fun. It, it sounds like fun. What? Uh, give me the inf What's the inference? An easy one. Monopoly. Sorry. Candyland. Well, they're all they're all games, right? Yeah. That's easy. That's 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 like on the level of the fruit or whatever. But something else, something that's a bit more difficult. Oh, I, I'm, well, I'm going to okay, start writing these you, down. Uh... Time travel, coming back from the dead, never having to go to sleep. What is it? Things that are impossible. <laughs> oh, it's so simple. It's so simple. See, there we go. There we go. But, you know, but but that's only one answer. And you mm -hmm. see, like sometimes when I've gotten when you get into the groove and you get this vibe happening, mm -hmm. you can build you, you could do 40 minutes off this one riff. I mean, I just I've had like people just I've had to shoehorn them out the door because they want to talk about the opening of class exercise. And now I'm like 75 minutes behind on a really exciting curriculum. And it's just, you know, backwatering. But you think, you know, you go where the energy is, but they're learning about something so fundamental to mm -hmm. thinking, you know, and they're learning it for themselves. They're not having, I, I'm not doing, I'm not saying anything. They're discovering the problems with themselves. You know, because someone will go, well, that's not the only way to think about those. Those could be themes for uh, for fantasy shows. And I said, well, uh, man, you know, and so, you know, uh, right, 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 right. So grass, cheese and bullshit. Things that you cut. Yeah. OK. Yeah. 
<laughs> See, it's beautiful. I love, I love it. This. I it's love good. it. That's good. What's what is your tip for today? Okay, my tip is really, really practical. And I, you know, it is difficult, but think of yourself as working for a company that has timesheets. I did this once. The boss was talking about head hours. Use that expression, head hours. And every hour was divided into 15-minute segments. And you had to, you know, bill against client job numbers. So what I'm suggesting is that for 48 hours, because this is very hard to do beyond that, but actually do a 15-minute, so four segments per hour timesheet documenting as faithfully as what you're doing, as if you were, you know, working the whole time for a company, or as if an AI were observing you, you know, maybe you're working at a call center, David has gone to the toilet, you know, and you're, you know, you really have it all out there. I honestly believe that this simple, ruthlessly stupid and to some extent, just monumentally annoying exercise will open visions about our lives in a way that nothing else can. And it's just so simple, but you have to do it really intensively. And I think that if you do, uh, you'll start to see something that is the really big picture. Because how we actually spend our time, both physically and in the interior secret world of the mind, that's the nature, that's our lives. That's what it really means. So we're really looking forensically at, at what our lives actually mean. I love that. And that's something that I, I need to, I, I need more of that, I think. As a and I just think a, a short two-day slot of doing it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of our listeners would too. I think a lot of our listeners are a lot like us. And they they tend to be much more, you know, concept like I like I like the kind of brass tacks element of that and the focus that it would that it would need. It's really hard because it's it's really you know pushing a grid down, but mm -hmm. honestly, it just well, you know, creating, you know, we were talking about the emblems being witnesses for themselves, creating our own evidence, creating our own file of research that only we can do about our lives. I don't know anything more important than that. And if you just devote even one day to this practice, I, I really think something, just a slight tweak of understanding will creep in. I, I, I really, I don't want to characterize what, what I've learn i'm i'm both disturbed and uh encouraged so mm -hmm. i think it's not a simple thing of what you you take away and i'm not saying it's the most profound thing in the world. i am saying it is another important sort of algorithmic look at at who we think we are mm. love it and for your dream i'm looking forward to this one Okay. Well, I, I want to warn people, this is the first um, really certifiable nightmare I've had in some time. And there are some parameters. Uh, I, I think we all have a subjective idea of what a nightmare is, as opposed to an anxiety dream. But it usually, 
means waking up very suddenly, violently. It, it means a change in heart rate. It means a, a, a metabolic, biological uh, response that usually has some duration to it. And this certainly qualifies. And I know where some of the features of this come from. Uh, and partly they're, they're really unresolved and unexpressed uh, socio-political views that that developed around the COVID uh, pandemic, because I did follow all the rules. I I, I did you know I I really went along with the program. I'm vaccinated. I did all of that, but I had an enormous concern about it, and I'm I'm seeing that in this dream that uh, some of those real the, the sense that that suddenly things were mandated and that we were trying out in mass quantities new medication i mean as someone who's had malaria and has done a lot of psychoactive drugs i've got a lot of reason to have some questions about you know drugs uh and i think that's fair enough but in my dream we did have a return of of pandemic conditions uh but this was on the psychological front insofar as there's a difference, as it turns out, there's not. What suddenly began to ripple out across the world was just a massive fundamental epidemic, pandemic of depression. And it very, very quickly became more severe because the pharmaceutical supply, which is really along the lines of, of your basic drug dealers. I don't know if people have done any research into how many, uh, particularly Americans, are on some form of medication for depression. It looks to me so much like, you know, Harlem heroin dealing or drug dealing today, you know, anywhere. It just is, it's out of control. Well, in addition to this pandemic of very fundamental depression, uh, there is a supply chain issue. So people who were on medication just have cut off access, a little bit like the the you know problems with toilet paper and certain canned goods during the COVID epidemic. But people suddenly just cease being able to get out of bed. And the quietness and the totality of that sense in the dream, I have never in my life and I went back to my you know, dream index going back three decades now. And I can say that I've never had anything that was so quiet and undramatic and ungorish and unmonstrous and just as pervasive as the kind of gloom that settles over a city when there's a major, major uh, bushfire. We've seen this in, in some Eastern cities in America from the Canada bushfires, but, or fallout from a volcano. I'm thinking of kind of almost when Krakatoa blew up in I think 1889, you know? I mean, in the big scheme of things, not that big a deal. And yet, and yet for two months, you know, ash was drifting around the globe and there were blackouts all over the place. But this was a blackout, kind of gray out, white out that I could see through. But it was such a pervasive sense of just chilling dysfunction. 
chilling dysfunction. And I woke up with a sense that my first, I took something out of the dream with me. And it was the one, I've got to call everyone I know. Just reach out to people, just connect. And, you know, in a way, I really do think this is the way th we could just go out with a total whimper of people just succumbing to a kind of catatonia. You know, I don't really see that that's not not possible. I think we're seeing that in many cities already through drug use, through mental illness problems. But I think a general second stage level of catatonic inability or certainly paralytic, not being able to deal with really the range of, of interactions, retreating, retreating. And what is depression if not great retreat? Fetalism, you know, it's just, that's what it really is in its extreme, not being able to move. So that was my nightmare. And it really, uh, but I, I was happy to wake with the thought of call everyone you know, you know, reach out in some way. Mm-hmm. <laughs>